You and I, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. The battle is won. We're fighting mop-up operations. We understand the primary battleground is planet Earth. This is the sphere where the battle takes place. Welcome to Mana Bible Lessons. In this podcast, we take an in-depth expository look at the Bible. You're listening to the audio-only version. If you would like to see the video, visit manapodcast.com forward slash watch. And now, here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Ephesians 6, Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. This will be our last week in the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll start Numbers and Deuteronomy back in the Old Testament. We've been in the New Testament for some time, having done Mark and then uh, Timothy and Titus and then uh, Ephesians. So we're looking forward to going back to the Old Testament. Lord willing, we'll be there next week. Use some more maps to give you kind of a picture of what's going on. So today we want to finish uh, the book of Ephesians talking about spiritual warfare. If anyone understood that following Jesus meant fighting Satan, it was the Apostle Paul. This book was written from prison. Paul was imprisoned in Rome uh, when it was written. He was under house arrest and he was very likely chained uh, pretty much 24 hours a day to a Roman soldier in six hour shifts uh, for preaching the gospel. So he understood not only what he's talking about, but he understood why he was experiencing it. All Christians face enemies and our enemies are all the same. We face three major enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's been true uh, for several thousand years. The world system, the Bible describes the world system, really is living life without God. It's a satanic inspired philosophy of life that opposes God and lives life as though God doesn't exist. And that's the culture we live in today and it's, that's been the culture of the world for thousands of years. The world system opposes God and lives as though God doesn't exist. Now, the flesh is our old sin nature. It's what we inherited from Adam and Eve, and our sin nature is stuck on sin. I was going to say stuck on stupid, but sin is stupid, so it's stuck on stupid. It literally is addicted to sin. There is something in us that craves to rebel and craves to oppose God. That's our sin nature. So the devil is a disembodied intellect uh, who uses the world on the outside and the flesh on the inside to tempt us to sin, to tempt us to rebel against God. He's a personal enemy. He's not a force. It's not may the force be with you. Satan is a person with intellect, emotions, and will. He's called many names in scripture. He's called the devil, which means accuser. He's called Satan, which means adversary. So he's an adversary who accuses. He's also called the tempter, murderer, the liar, a serpent, an angel of light, uh, and the God of this age. Before his fall, Satan's name was Lucifer. Lucifer means star of the morning or son of the dawn. And Lucifer was the prime minister of heaven. He was the highest creature in all of God's creation. He ran the choir in heaven, the worship of heaven, and he was the anointing cherub that covered. He literally uh, covered the throne of God, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel uh, 28. But 
He decided that that position was not high enough. He didn't want to be the prime minister. He wanted the throne itself. And so scripture tells us in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 that he led a mutiny in heaven. He committed treason against the king of glory. And Revelation 12:4 indicates that about a third of the angels in heaven followed him in that rebellion against God. So God demoted him, exiled him from heaven. And Satan is a creature, which means he's not omniscient, omnipresent. He's not everywhere present, not all powerful, not all knowing, but he is a creature. He's the highest of all creatures, but he is not God. We tend to overrate Satan on one hand and underrate him on the other, and we want to have a biblical understanding of our enemy. But Satan, even though he's a creature, accomplishes a great deal of evil because he has a lot of helpers called demons or fallen angels. Those are the one-third of the angelic host that followed him uh, that we know from Revelation. So Satan's agenda is very simple. Satan is always going to try and do two things. Attack the glory of God and undermine the faith of God's people. Satan will always try and attack the glory of God and undermine the faith of God's people. So his attack on you will always be to undermine your faith. Paul is now going to tell the church at Ephesus and us, 21st century Christians, how to successfully defend against those inevitable satanic attacks. Let's pick up the narrative at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, this word finally means this introduces the last section, if you will, and introduces what remains for us to do, what is yet for us to do. And he says, Finally, I want you to be strong in the Lord. And this is a command. This is not a suggestion. It's an imperative. Be strong in the Lord. And it really means two things. Number one, allow God, passively speaking, allow God to strengthen you, number one. And number two, actively you strengthen yourself in the Lord. So you're doing two things there. You're allowing God to strengthen you, but at the same time, you're commanded to pursue it. The Lord is, of course, the source of the power, but we are commanded to pursue his strength. And the way you pursue the strength of the Lord is by submitting to him. Now, this is a paradox. We think, well, I'm going to be strong by being in charge. No, when you want the strength of the Lord, you obtain the strength of the Lord by submitting to him, by surrendering to him. So the weaker we are, the stronger he is. Before David was crowned king, in his 20s, he spent most of the decade of his 20s, matter of fact, about 10 years, fleeing from King Saul. King Saul was trying to kill him because David was the anointed heir to the throne and Saul wanted his son Jonathan to be king. So Saul spent the better part of 10 years trying to kill David. And David was running for his life in the southern part of the Negev. That's the southern part of Israel. And once when he returned to his village Ziklag, that was a village that he had been given with his warriors, he found that the Amalekites, which was a raiding tribe, had made a raid on the town, burned the town to the ground with fire, and captured everyone's family, children, and all the plunder. And he had a real problem. 1 Samuel 36, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says, Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people, these are his own people, his own warriors, his own troops, wanted to stone him. For all the people were embittered because each one of his sons and his daughters. But, here's the key phrase, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And he did this by remembering God's promises. This is going to be very important in the few minutes to come. He remembered God's promises. He recalled God's faithful deliverance of in the past. And when you read the rest of this chapter, you'll find out that he very humbly sought God's next step. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do I do next? So we are commanded to strengthen ourselves in the same way that David did. And it's not our might, it is his might, the strength of his might. This word in the Greek, might and strength, is dudamus. And it's where we get the word dynamic or where we get the word dynamite, right? It's power, a great deal of power. This word might literally refers to absolute authority. So it's talking about God's power, which is unlimited. It's talking about God's might, which has no uh, limitations on it. If we are to win a battle with a supernatural enemy, which is Satan, we are going to need God's strength. Amen? Because we do not have the capacity to take on a supernatural enemy in our own strength. It's interesting, just look at a parallel. For example, our world today in the transportation realm is developing a lot of different vehicles that run on multiple kinds of fuel. You can get a car that's powered by gasoline, diesel, propane, electricity, and they're even talking about hydrogen vehicles and putting some research into those. So each vehicle requires the right kind of fuel. Now, our battle with Satan requires supernatural fuel, supernatural power, and that power is the Holy Spirit. That is your supernatural power to successfully wage war against Satan. And that power has been promised to us, Acts 1.8. Jesus told his disciples, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Paul reiterated that in Philippians 4.13 when he says, I can do all things, but the power source is through Christ who strengthens me. So it's God's power that we are mandated to appropriate. God's power overcomes all enemies and we don't control God's power. God's power possesses us as we surrender to him. So it's his power and his control that gives us this capacity to win the war with Satan. As a matter of fact, the war with Satan's already been won. It was won at the cross. Death was put to death at the cross. Um, someone has said, I think, well, you and I, we are not fighting for victory. We are fighting from victory. The battle is won. We're fighting mop-up operations. And in light of that, Paul says in verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here's the principle. Putting on all of God's armor enables us to defend against Satan's deadly strategies. Putting on all of God's armor enables us to defend against Satan's deadly strategies. See, each one of us is commanded by God and responsible to God to put on the armor. And we're supposed to put on the armor now, right? We're not supposed to be depending on our own strength and depending on ourselves. The reality is God provides the armor, the means to win spiritual battles, but we're responsible to put the armor on and keep it on, right? You understand, once you have the armor on, you don't take it off. You don't neglect it. You don't lay it aside. People do. 
By the way, just in case you wondered, in your spiritual warfare with Satan, you need to understand he never takes a vacation. He doesn't ever go to sleep. He doesn't take holidays and say, you know, I'm going to leave you alone for a week. You can take the armor off, go to the beach, and just spiritually, I, I promise not to attack you during this week. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. He's on 24-7. That's why scripture says, put on the full armor of God. There's no unnecessary armor. There are six pieces of equipment listed here, and every single one of them is utterly essential because God knows your enemy better than you do, and he designed the armor specifically with what we need. By the way, any area of your life that you're not wearing the armor has a target painted on it. And that's right where Satan's gonna go for because he knows that you are undefended at that point. And he says, when you put the armor on, you're able to stand firm. By the way, your battle with Satan, our battle with Satan is not an offensive battle. It's a defensive battle. We are not commanded to attack Satan. We're commanded to resist his attacks. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him. And how do you do that? Firm in your faith. Now, the word stand here is a military term. And it literally means to successfully defend and hold a critical position while you're under attack. So we assume that we're going to be under attack. Stan says, I'm defending this ground and I'm not giving it up. I'm not backing up. And that is required. The requirement to do that is faith in God's power and putting on the equipment that he has given us to use. And what are we resisting? We're resisting the schemes of the devil. This you know, Satan's a pretty good military strategist. He's had lots of practice at this for thousands of years. And he has multiple methods, by the way, schemes means methods, to destroy his enemies. We know that he's crafty. We know that he's cunning. We know that we are instructed to not be ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And you look and you say, well, I, I wouldn't think Paul would be ignorant of his schemes. Paul had been under attack for decades. That's correct. The number one scheme Satan does, he tries to convince you that he doesn't exist. And the world buys it. When you talk about a personal devil, the world will smile and say, Ah, we can split the atom. I don't think there's a personal devil. That's exactly what Satan wants us to believe, that he doesn't exist. And then he can, that's the ultimate deception. Then he can accomplish what he wants and we'll chalk it up to something else. If we're not going to get taken advantage of by our enemy, then the number one admonition is know your enemy. Know your enemy. Satan's primary weapon is deception. It says he's like a predator, a, a lion prowling around seeking to ambush prey and then pouncing on it by surprise and, of course, devouring it. In any conflict, any military conflict, the number one objective is always surprise. If you can surprise your enemy, your advantages are multiplied. Now, if you want to find out how Satan operates, let's take a quick look in the Garden of Eden. This is the first time we see Satan in action and is going to reveal some of his schemes. Number one scheme Satan will use. He will deceive us by casting doubt on God's word. Amen. 
casting doubt on God's word. In Genesis 3, 1, Satan told Eve, and he asked her a question. It seems so innocent and it's deadly. He says, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? What was the truth? Of course God said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? See, here's the principle. Once God has spoken, you don't need to listen to anybody else. As a matter of fact, once he has spoken, you are a fool if you listen to anyone else because they will contradict what he says. God's word is the only word that we need. So he'll cast doubt on God's word and he will do that to you today. When you're in the middle of a battle and your circumstances are discouraging, say, has God said? Yes, he has spoken and he wrote it down in stone. Number two, Satan lies to us about the consequences of sin. In verse four, Satan tells Eve, you will not surely die. Is that a bold faced lie? What did God say? In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he lied to Eve about the consequences of sin. That happens today all the time. We minimize sin in this culture. It really doesn't matter. Everybody's doing it. No, the soul that sins shall die. It's going to be separated from God. God always speaks truth. Number three, Satan lies by causing people to doubt God's goodness. He causes people to doubt God's goodness. Verse five, for God knows that in a day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a clever lie. See, what he's basically saying, if God really loved you, Adam and Eve, he would never tell you no. He would always say, there's nothing that's, off limits to you. And like any good parent, because you're good parents, God says, because I love you, I'm going to tell you no, because there are some things that will harm you. Yes? Did you ever tell your children no? Of course, because you love them. Satan will always try and cause us to doubt God's goodness, especially when our circumstances are difficult, when the battle is hard, when we're in pain, when we're not getting what we want. If you only did it my way, you could get what you want. It's a lie. The last way Satan deceives people is he deceives people into believing that they can achieve what their soul desires based on their own effort and work instead of depending on God. Verse six, very clever. When the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They bought the lie, they ate the fruit, and their eyes were opened. But the consequence was not what was promised. They were not like God. They were now guilty and they tried to hide and cover. And we have been doing it ever since. I did it my way is the freeway to hell. That's not to heaven. So Satan will attack primarily through deception. 
And you just looked at Adam and Eve and you see how the deception works. However, sometimes his attacks are very direct. He attacked Job, blatantly and directly destroyed his wealth, his family and his health, Job 1 and 2. If you want a good exercise in humility, read Job 1 and 2. Everything but his life. So Christians are commanded to know your enemy and then prepare to stand against him, verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here's the principle. Our battle is not with people, but with Satan's forces in heavenly places. Our battle is not with people, but with Satan's forces in heavenly places. This word struggle, this word a wrestle, you probably have it wrestle in the King James Version. It's a word for hand-to-hand combat. I mean, this is up close and personal. It's a wrestling term, and it's not a wrestling where you pin somebody and they give up. It's a gladiator fight, like in the arena of the Roman Colosseum. And there's no such thing as a fair fight in the Colosseum, right? You did whatever you had to do to stay alive because the loser could lose their life at that point in time. So obeying God means resisting the devil. It means getting hand-to-hand, mano-a-mano, face-to-face combat with the enemy, and that means a fight to the death. This is not, um, you know, a fight with rules. Satan doesn't have rules. We need to understand our enemy. Our battle preparations are dictated by the nature of the conflict. Paul says, the nature of our conflict is our struggle is not with flesh and blood. We're not war with people. People may oppose us. People may harm us. People may slander us. People may hurt us, but they are not the enemy. They are doing the work of the enemy because they're deceived. People that oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ are deceived. They love their sin and they're following Satan because they're believing a lie. Anytime we get distracted and we begin to fight with people, we've taken our eyes off Jesus. And what happened to Peter when he took his eyes off Jesus and he was trying to walk on the water? He sank. Anytime we fight with people, we've forgotten who the enemy is and we operate in our own strength. Jesus died for those people. Believe it or not, Jesus died for the people that hate us. He, Jesus told us in Matthew 5, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and send rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, we just got a bunch of rain and it fell on a lot of evil people. Yes? Think we got a few of them here? Yeah, we got one. Yeah, we do. The rain fell at my house too. I didn't deserve it. But God shows mercy to the just and the unjust because he's a merciful God and he says, you behave like I behave. When you act like God acts, when we forgive like God forgives, we represent him on earth accurately and people get to see his character. So Paul says, people are not the enemy. Let me tell you what your enemy is like. He describes our enemies as rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness. Now these terms either refer, they refer to a couple of things. They may refer to four orders of angelic powers, angelic beings, or they could refer to four characteristics that are true of all fallen angels. 
If Paul's delineating an organizational structure, if he's talking about a hierarchy of evil that we're opposing, then rulers and powers and world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness are really describing the hierarchy in hell. He's really talking about um, um, uh, an organizational leadership under the direction of Satan itself, which could be, that absolutely could be true. However, if these terms that char are, are characteristics of all fallen angels, then rulers, he's talking about, he's talking about authority. Powers, he's talking about strength. So he's talking about fallen angels that have authority and strength. World forces points out that all fallen angels have worldwide influence and forces of wickedness illustrates their evil character. So I'm not, I don't know whether he's necessarily talking about a hierarchy or whether he's talking about characteristics. Both, in fact, could be very true, but he's telling us people are not your enemy, but you do have an enemy and they're organized and they're evil and they're following Satan. And their sphere of operations seems to be the heavenly places. We know that Satan and his demons communicate with God because scripture says that Satan accuses you to the Father all the time. You're probably being accused right now by Satan from something you did. And you know, do you deserve it? Of course, because we've sinned in the last 24 hours, so his accusations are accurate. But we have a defense attorney. His name is Jesus Christ. And he says, paid for, paid for, paid for, paid for. Blood of Jesus Christ covers all of that. So we know that these evil forces have access to heaven. We know they can't live there because God threw them out of heaven. As near as scripture describes, we understand the primary battleground is planet Earth. This is the sphere where the battle takes place because you are the prize and the target that Satan seeks to control and ultimately to destroy. Verse 13, therefore, in light of that, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Now this verse is really a summary verse. He kind of repeats what he said up to this point for urgency. And anytime scripture repeats something, he repeats it because it needs bearing in mind that it's very, very important. It says, if you have put on the full armor of God, you surely will be equipped to stand and resist Satan in that evil day. Any day you're attacked, of course, is an evil day. And he says, do everything you can to prepare before the battle begins so that you will be able to stand. And then verse 14 says, therefore, stand firm, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Here's the principle. A life of spiritual integrity reveals the righteousness of God in us. A life of spiritual integrity, truth, alignment with truth, reveals the righteousness of God in us. Now, as I mentioned, it's very likely that Paul was chained to a Roman soldier during his imprisonment. So he's now going to describe the armor of God as exemplified by the armor that a Roman soldier wore. And he's gonna describe it to us in the order that the Roman soldier would put it on. Rob's gonna show you a picture of that and keep it up for a while. And he's gonna start with, he says, girded with the loins of truth. A soldier normally wore a short tunic or a leather belt around their waist over their shirt or tunic. And that belt or girdle, you might have a girdle in your 
uh, translation was around his waist. It was kind of a leather apron that extended from the waist partway to the knees, to the thighs, and it held his garments and his weapons together. Today we would say, have you ever seen a police officer wearing a belt? And on that belt is hung all the equipment that a police officer needs. That was the function of this Roman girdle or this Roman belt. In that era, people didn't wear uh, form-fitting clothes. They didn't have the seamstress and the ability to, to, to produce pants. So they typically wore you know, long flowing robes that looked good when you're walking, but they got in the way when you wanted to act, when you wanted to move. So when preparing for action, they would reach down and take their robe and tuck it under their belt, generally so the robe would come above their knees so they'd be free to move, they'd be free to act, they'd be free to, to fight or to work. Uh, freed their legs up. So when the Bible uses the word gird up your loins, that means prepare for action. It means tuck in anything that's getting in your way and get ready for battle or conflict or action at that point. And Paul says, the Christian's belt is truth. The Christian's belt is truth. Truth, like the Roman belt, is what holds us together. We need to be controlled by truth because Satan is a liar and he will always tell lies. So the, the belt of truth really refers to two things. Number one, the objective revealed truth in God's word. You have the truth in your lap. It's called God's word. God, his character is the only unchanging reality in the universe and his word is truth. All have sinned, the wages of sin is death, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is objective truth because it's God's word and God is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God's word is the truth that holds all things together. It's the foundation that holds our life together. But not only is the truth the objective truth of God's word, the truth, the belt of truth also refers to the lifestyle that the Christian is supposed to lead. When we obediently apply God's truth to our lives, we now are living a life of integrity, a life of spiritual integrity. We are living in alignment with the reality of God himself. A life of integrity produces tremendous power because it produces a clear conscience. But a life of deceit, a life of, of hypocrisy ends in defeat. So not only are we talking about the truth of God's word, which is objective, we're talking about are we living in obedience to that? And the belt of truth illustrates both of those. You know, it's interesting. When David sinned with Bathsheba, he tried to cover it up for a solid year. A year. And Psalm 32 and 51 tells us how painful that year was and how little power he had and how much he was consumed with guilt because he was not living in accordance with the truth of God's word. See, truth provides not only stability, but truth was the place where all your other weapons were hung. So the belt of truth was where the scabbard for the sword of the spirit was hung. It was the breastplate was attached to. God's word, objective truth, and our living in accordance with it is where everything else is hung and is integrated in our life. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate was a corset made of bronze metal plates uh, attached to animal hides or chain mail. 
and it covered the shoulders, but primarily the chest front and back. Usually there were two parts, one part for the front, one part for the back with animal hides on the side to kind of hold it together. What it covered is from the neck to the torso, covered the torso, neck to the waist, front and back. And it was really designed to protect your core, most importantly, your heart. So righteousness, Paul's talking about righteousness, he's talking about your state of righteousness with God. Are you right with God? What he's really talking about is justification, where God declared you righteous and he declared you the sinner not guilty once and for all. So in one sense, when he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, he's talking about the righteousness that you have from Jesus Christ, the perfect righteousness that Jesus gave you at salvation. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. He sees the perfection of Christ's righteousness. But not only is it Christ's righteousness, we've got a part to play here too, which is called practical righteousness, which are we living in alignment with that righteousness that Jesus gave us? Are we walking with Jesus every day? So it's, it's not only what Jesus did for me, but it's how I'm living on the basis of what Jesus has done for me. You know, I don't have to ask where any of us have sinned in the last 24 hours. Most of us have probably sinned on our mind in the last 30 seconds. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, we are cleansed from sin and our heart is protected from a guilty consciousness. And we are given the righteousness of Christ and made pure at that point. See, one of Satan's primary tactics is to accuse us of sin in order to cause us to doubt God's forgiveness. Satan will tell you every day, you don't deserve that. You don't deserve the forgiveness. You don't deserve his love. Look how you lived. Look at that thought that just went through your mind. Look at what came out of your mouth. And he will guilt trip us and try and separate us from the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we have to come back and say, no, I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sin. Interestingly, as we walk with Jesus every day, he actually produces his righteousness in us. And that's called progressive holiness. Many, many, many of us are further along the road than we were a year ago or two years ago because of the breastplate of righteousness. And he also gives us the power to do that. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, which one should you do first? Most of the time, I won't say most of the time, I will say some of the time we get this backwards. We try and fight Satan in our own strength. We pick up a lot of scar tissue and a lot of blood and we go, oh Lord, what's going on? How come it's so bad? Well, have we submitted to God? First, because the power to fight Satan comes through Almighty God. You know, in the Christian life, you win battles on your knees. You fight on your knees through prayer. First submit, then resist. Next, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Here's the principle. The gospel assures us that we have peace with God and he gives us the power to stand against Satan. The gospel assures us that we have peace with God and he gives us the power to stand against Satan. A Roman's footwear was called caligia. They were really heavy-soled sandal boots and they were firmly strapped to both the foot and the insole by leather thongs. Uh, they were studded with sharp nails. So they would take nails and pound them through the soles 
of the shoes, of the sandals. So they would be almost like cleats when they walked because you, they had to give them traction. You know, in hand-to-hand -hand combat, you could not afford a slip. If you slipped during hand-to-hand -hand combat, it probably cost your life. So they all had these studs, if you will, nails in the shoe sole to give them traction. You know, there's a reason why baseball players and football players wear cleats, right? It gives them traction. Uh, our, our soldiers today don't go to battle wearing Birkenstocks. And I've never seen a construction working, you know, working a jackhammer and flip-flops. If you did, you're probably going to see some missing toes. So footwear we take for granted, but it's really, really foundational. Good footwear allows you to be ready for whatever environment is coming. And, and Paul says that footwear, if you will, is the gospel of peace. Ah, number one, it, to some degree, it says we should always be ready to move when God gives us an opportunity to share the gospel. But this context is not necessarily about spreading the gospel because that's an advance. This is a battle with Satan, and it's a defensive in nature. So we're commanded to stand, not advance against Satan. And in this case, the gospel is what gives us that firm footing, the assurance that we have peace with God. That gives us confidence that God loves us and that we have peace with God and that God forgives us and fights for us. Satan will always try and discourage us. He will always try and separate us from God. And the gospel promises that we have peace with God and that gives us stability and confidence to stand against Satan's lies. Verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Here's the principle. Choosing to trust and obey God's word, regardless of circumstances, will smother Satan's lies. Choosing, choosing to trust and obey God's word, regardless of circumstances, will smother Satan's lies. Now, the shield that a Roman soldier carried, there were really two of them. A small one uh, was round. We're talking about the large one. This is the one they most commonly carry, the infantrymen. It was made of wood. It was a rectangle. It was about two and a half feet wide, about four feet high. And, and the Greek name is thurios, which means, interestingly, door. And this shield was the size of a small door. It was two and a half feet wide, four foot plus tall. And they would coat, sometimes enemy soldiers would coat their, their arrows in tar, light them on fire, and then shoot this flaming arrow into the enemy camp, trying to set either the soldier on fire or their tents on fire, etc., etc. And that's, the, of course, the metaphor for what Satan does. So before the battle began, a Roman soldier or any soldier would wet their, their shield because their, their shield had leather in it a lot of times, and they'd coat that with water. They'd soak it in order to extinguish the fiery arrows that were shot by the enemy. So the shield was so important because you literally could crouch down behind it and it would cover all of you. Understand a four and a half foot tall shield, four foot, two and a half foot wide. You could literally hide behind the whole thing and it would cover you. And, and the, the, the shields were formed and shaped so that these infantry soldiers, these legionaries could close rank and form what was called a testudo or a turtle formation. Rob's going to show you a picture of what that looked like. The shields were designed that the soldiers literally could hold their shields edge to edge, side by side, and the rows behind them held their shields over their head 
<clears throat> and they look like a turtle shell. That's why they called it a testudo. And they used this during sieges when they were attacking uh, a, a fortress and it would protect them from arrows or rocks or spears being thrown down on them uh, from defenders on the walls above. And today you see this same formation. It works today. You ever seen police officers with plexiglass shields and urban conflicts? Have you been watching anything in Hong Kong recently? You've seen that. They all have plexiglass shields you can see through, but I mean, it's very much the same concept in operation at that point. Protection from clubs, rocks, Molotov cocktails, etc. This illustrates why we do life together. There is much more protection for the saint when we fight battles together than when we fight battles alone. Amen? Amen? Satan will always seek to isolate us from God, number one, and number two, from each other. Because once we're on our own, he can attack us from front, side, top to bottom, etc. And if you're in a testudo formation, his ability to attack is a lot tougher. God has demonstrated his love on the cross for us. And that is one of the things that gives us confidence to be able to battle against Satan and to stand together in that process. Satan will shoot arrows of doubt into your life routinely. He will say, has God said? Does God love you? You're so bad, God could never love you. You're a hypocrite. Why would you go back to church? Everybody knows you're a hypocrite because they all know that you sin. Those other people in church, they don't have any sin. They don't live like you. You are so blah, 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 blah. And those are all deceptions. And they may be true, but the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you and I from all sin. If you're being lied to on the telephone, what do you do? Hang up. You don't need to stay on the conversation. Somebody's trying to sell you something you don't want or a scam or whatever. It's called hang up. We tell our kindergartners. What do, you, what do we say? Walk away. Well, the same thing. If Satan's lying to you, turn off that tape recording. And you know how you turn it off? Go get your sword of the spirit out and start reading it out loud. That's a good way to shut Satan up, by the way. When he's putting garbage in your head, get the word of God and read it Amen. out loud. That'll shut him up. We'll talk about that. And 17. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here's the principle. Our salvation is secure, but we must know and use His powerful Word to defeat Satan's daily temptations. Our salvation is secure, but we must know and use God's powerful Word. I should have put God in there. God's powerful Word to defeat Satan's daily temptation. So you wore this metal helmet and it was very hot, and it was pretty uncomfortable, and so you normally wouldn't put it on until the battle was imminent. I mean, you'd be watching and watching and watching. When they get within firing range with the arrows, you put the helmet on at that point in time, and the helmet protected the head, which is the thinking part of the body. And Christians, we're commanded to take up and put on the helmet of salvation. And the helmet of salvation here is not primarily about your salvation from sin. That was done once. 
This is primarily talking about deliverance from satanic attack. It's talking about protecting your mind from Satan's repeated assaults on us. And of course, we're saved from Satan's attack by calling out to God and asking for salvation, asking for deliverance, asking for rescue, right? You know, when we're under attack, we either choose to trust God for our deliverance or we trust in our own power to defeat Satan. Most Christians cry out to God for deliverance after they take a few body blows trying to fight Satan in their own strength. Cry out early. Ask for deliverance early. See, the helmet protects us, and the sword is our only offensive weapon. Rob's going to show you a picture of a short sword. This is called the sword of the Spirit. And it's the only offensive weapon that's listed by Paul. The Roman infantry sword was called either a machaira or a gladius, either one, very common names. It's a two-edged blade, sharpened on both sides, about 18 to 24 inches long, extremely sharp tip. Some of them actually had the tip curve up a little bit at the end. So once you impaled somebody, you twisted it, and you could disembowel them when you pulled it out. Not a pretty picture, but very effective. So the infantry soldier would always lead with the shield, lead with the shield, and then you would stab around the shield. So the shield would always protect you, and then you would stab and slash around the shield. That was how the strategy was to operate with. So the sword of the spirit refers to the origin of the sword. And the origin of the sword is, surprise, surprise, the Holy Spirit, right? Because the word of God was written by the Holy Spirit, and it's his word. And the word here is not logos. The Greek word for logos means written word, the written word. This word is rima, R-H-E-M-A, and it's the spoken word. It's the verbal word, right? Rima refers to the specific spoken words of scripture that you and I use when we're tempted in order to counter and parry Satan's attack. And we know that God's word is supernaturally powerful. It's a phenomenal weapon. If you use it. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He's talking about the, the Bechira here. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The best example of the use of the word of God is Jesus Christ. Remember when Jesus, right after he was baptized by John the Baptist, he was led of the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was tempted by the devil three times after 40 days of hunger. And how did he counteract satanic temptation? With the sword of the Spirit. He wielded the, God's word like a sword, and he cut Satan to pieces. See, Satan had tried the exact same three temptations in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and they worked to perfection. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. There's only three major temptations you will ever face from Satan. The same three. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. Every temptation you face is going to come under one of those categories. Satan's very routine. He's not going to invent a new temptation strictly for you. You're human. He knows what you struggle with. The fruit looked good for food. The fruit looked delicious and desirable. 
and the fruit promised to make Eve wise like God. So Adam and Eve followed Satan's word and rejected God's word and fell into sin. Now, Satan tempted Jesus using the exact same formula. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Stones into bread, jump off the temple, fall down and worship me. Same formula. Every time Jesus pulled out the sword of the word of God and directly countered and attacked and resisted Satan's temptation by quoting scripture, spoken word, rima of God's word against that specific temptation. In order for you and I to handle the word of God and speak it in parrying Satan's attack, you have to know it. If you're going to handle God's word in combat, you need to hide it in your heart in peacetime. David told us this, Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. And who's tempting you to sin all the time? Of course. So learn to handle the word. And the way you handle it is simple. Know it and use it. Read it. Study it. Memorize it. Sing it. Share it. Become competent in handling the word of God. Because once you enter the battle and you're under temptation, you're not going to have time to prepare. You are going to fight with whatever level of preparation you have. That's it. All the weapons God has given us must be wielded, verse 18, with all prayer and petition. Pray at all times in the spirit and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Here is the final summation of how to handle the equipment that God has given us, the armor of God. Here's the principle. When guided by the Holy Spirit, persistent prayer unleashes God's power on behalf of people. When guided by the Holy Spirit, persistent prayer unleashes God's power on behalf of people. So you want to know how to handle these weapons in combat? Prayer will show you how to do that. We must pray in order to prepare for the conflict. We must pray, pray continually in the battle. There is no time and no season in our life where prayer is not the first best choice. There is nothing that happens in your life where prayer is not the first best choice. We should be talking with God before we do anything else. And you know for Brad Hannick what that is? Talk with God before I open my mouth and talk with people. Have you ever had a situation where somebody goes, here's the problem, and you are going to tell them this brilliant answer, your opinion. And the Holy Spirit says, talk to me first. You don't know what's in their heart. You don't know what they need. You don't know their circumstances. You're going to give them your opinion. They don't need your opinion. They need me. They need Jesus. And then we say something completely different because the Holy Spirit will put the words in our mouth when we ask. Sometimes we don't know how to pray. You ever run into that situation? You just say, Lord, I don't even know what to ask for. I don't know whether to ask for life or death. I don't know whether to ask for healing or take them home. I have situations with my family that I am struggling with. I don't know what to do about. 
there's hope. Romans 8, 26. This would be a good verse to memorize. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he, the Father, who searches the hearts, knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There is such comfort in that. Sometimes we don't know what to pray for. We don't pray with power. By the way, praying in the Spirit is not some mystical, magical thing. Praying in the Spirit is surrendering your will first to whatever God wants. So many times our prayers are telling God what we want. God, if you would turn your hearing aid on and just do what I want, all of life would work. Please do blah, blah, blah. Let me persuade you. Let me give you all the reasons why you should do it my way. And well, sometimes our prayers reveal that, right? Praying in the Spirit starts with, thy will be done, right? So Paul says, don't just pray for your own needs, but pray for your fellow soldiers. Pray for your fellow saints. Don't just pray for your own comfort and convenience. Prayer really is a wartime walkie-talkie asking heaven for reinforcements in the battle. That's what it's designed for. You cannot win a world war with a BB gun. All right? And you're not going to win a war with Satan on human energy alone. It requires divine intervention. And apart from the power of God, of course, any battle with Satan for us is going to be hopeless. But with the power of God, winning any battle with Satan is inevitable. As a matter of fact, the war was one of the crosses we mentioned. We're fighting a mop-up operation until Jesus returns. And Paul says, until then, stay alert for any attacks. Jesus said the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's ready to go to the cross within hours. And his closest friends are getting a nod. They're getting some sleep. They're catching up on a nap. And Jesus comes back and he says to Peter, especially Matthew 26, 20, 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter in temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Satan loves to catch us when we're tired Temptation's much easier to fall into when we're tired and we want to rest, we want to nod off. And you know when you want to sleep the most? When you're reading the Word, of course, right? Because that's your power. And when you read the Word of God and you want to take a nod because it's sleepy and blah, that, you know where that's coming from. He doesn't want you to handle the sword of the Spirit. He wants you to take a nap, just like Peter did. Prayer is a good way to stay alert. And by the way, if you need to move when you pray, then move when you pray. No one says you got to close your eyes. If you're praying, you close your eyes, you fall asleep. It's real simple. Open your eyes. Get up and walk when you pray. Do whatever it takes to stay awake, to stay alert, to stay on target at that point in time. See, we're in a war, and we need to live in light of that reality. Paul says you've been given everything you need to win. Put on the armor and use it. Let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Number one, putting on all of God's armor enables us to defend against Satan's deadly strategies. Number two, our battle is not with people, but with Satan's forces in heavenly places. We cannot get distracted by human conflict. And boy, is that true for politics. We can easily get distracted into thinking people are enemy. People are never our enemy. Satan is the enemy. People 
are saved by Jesus Christ, his blood. We need to love them to Jesus. Number three, a life of spiritual integrity reveals the righteousness of Christ in us to the world. Number four, the gospel assures us that we have peace with God and it's on that foundation that we have the power to stand against Satan. Number five, choosing to trust and obey God's word regardless of circumstances, that's faith, that will smother Satan's lies. Number six, our salvation is secure, but we must know and use God's powerful word to conquer Satan's daily temptations. And lastly, when guided by the Holy Spirit, persistent prayer unleashes God's power on behalf of people. This is a lot of meat. I'm gonna encourage you, review, pray through it. I know that you're in the battle this week. I'm in the battle this week, but God has given us everything we need to triumph in Christ, amen? amen. Love you guys. <clears throat> now that you know, yeah. do. You've been listening to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review Mana Bible Lessons on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. Mana meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. For more information about the podcast and class, visit manapodcast.com. Thank you for joining us, and now that you know, do.